This week on the It's a Monkey podcast. Ideas themselves don't sell. People sell the idea. So I guess it, it, it depends on how good of a, a marketer you are. So so the inventor, the techie, the guy that comes up with a new idea, he's, he has one skill, and that's to come up with ideas, and he's very bright and creative. But, but what do you need to do with any product or service? You have to do three things. You have to be able to, to manufacture it. You have to be able to market it, and you have to be able to distribute it. So if you can't do all those three things, you're going to have to become like a general contractor and get somebody else to do those for you. Or, you know, that big angel or venture capitalist that's that's capable of doing all those things, that's it's ready to part with their money to, to push this idea. Hello, good evening. Good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are in the world. My name is Kevin Garber. I'm the CEO of Manage Flitter. I am recording this podcast with my co-host, design lead at Manage Flitter, Kate Frappel, on Tuesday, the 27th of February, 2018. Nearly, nearly at the end of the second month of 2018. We are screaming on ahead. You are with us on episode 114 of the It's a Monkey podcast. We've got a great show coming up. I chatted to Vincent Lotempio in upstate New York last week. Now, Vincent is a patent attorney, and um, I chatted to him about all things intellectual property relating to tech startups. And it's something that we haven't really covered on our show before. And it's actually quite a relevant topic for anyone who's thinking about starting a, a startup or uh, is involved with a startup. And it's a bit of a sort of fuzzy, obscure world um, patents and uh, trademarks and um, it's it's something that um, you know big companies tend to look at a lot but it's a lot of it um, a lot of the concepts and principles are very relevant to smaller companies as well so that's coming up later on in the show as always we uh, touch on the tech news for the week so we can uh, help you keep on top of bits and pieces that are happening in this very very fast moving industry of ours Firstly, welcome from Canada to my co-host, Kate. Kate, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast as usual. No worries. It's good to be back again. And a special welcome to anyone who's watching us on Facebook Live. We are experimenting on Facebook Live to um, record live um, the podcast or at least the, the, the elements of the podcast that aren't the pre-recorded interview. So we, we're always experimenting with different bits and pieces. So if you're watching us on Facebook Live, welcome. And uh, we're going to continue experimenting. We're going to try to get a, a regular time slot if we can commit to, which is a little bit tricky with all the chaos on our end. But if we have a regular time slot, then then people can you know, get a, bit, a little bit more familiar with tuning into the, the podcast. As always, if you uh, want to drop us a line, podcast at itsamonkey.com. If you want to tell us uh, what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy, guest suggestions, if you want to be a guest, even if you want to promote your startup for free and you want us to mention it, drop us an email at podcast at itsamonkey.com. But let's get straight into the tech news for this week. Kate, Google, uh, or one of Google's subsidiary, has come up with uh, an AI algorithm and uh, some tools and techniques that can help predict heart disease by looking into your eyes. Now, this is uh, definitely health tech is one of the areas that I'm incredibly fascinated with and try to follow. So very, very interesting story. Tell us a bit more about this one. Yeah, so the the health tech arm of Google uh, is called uh, Verily. And basically, they've come up with an algorithm 
that, as you said, assesses a person's risk of heart disease by using machine learning. They'll look at basically data from a whole bunch of people and uh, it can detect things like your age, your blood pressure, whether or not you smoke, and the results of these determine whether you're at risk of heart disease. So I believe there's a whole bunch of blood vessels at the back of your eye that uh, even to this day, even without these techniques and and um, doctors do use to determine your vascular health and other health elements, right? And they they making use of of that um, sort of uh, diagnostic tool of of those blood vessels as a, at the back of your eyes as a proxy for your other health. Yeah, definitely. So the rear interior of your eye, called the fundus, uh, full of blood vessels that reflect your overall health. Yeah. So basically, as well, they've got uh, they've done tests on on two different patients, one that's not prone to heart disease and one that is. Uh, and the accuracy level is about 70%. And the, the current method for detecting heart disease involves like having a blood test and it's much longer and sort of more long-winded. And the accuracy of that is 72%. So the algorithm is actually quite close to what we've already got. So they speak about in that article, which as always we'll link to in the show notes, um, how they actually took a whole bunch of data relating to, I assume, people's eye health and other elements of their health and they try to find all these patterns and correlations and they use that to, I guess, get the system going, get the AI and the machine learning going to find all these correlations so that when you go in with your eye, it's, it's, it knows what to look for and it can compare it against all the, the data sets. It sort of got me thinking of how much medical information and data currently is just absolutely going to waste, right? It's like… Oh, a lot. Yeah. I mean, currently, if, if any x-ray you get, MRI, blood test, I mean, wouldn't it be amazing, privacy concerns aside, but if it got anonymized and it got thrown into this massive machine learning engine and we could use all these metrics as predictors to just really get a lot, a lot better at predicting because medical health is is pretty good at dealing with issues when they mid to advanced stage but it is incredibly bad at predicting and preventative and and picking up things long before the fact yes definitely well that's basically what google's doing at the moment like they've recruited a lot of people for this algorithm alone they've had 300,000 patients analyzed and that data says what's going into uh, the ultimate results i guess Super, super interesting. Well, um, I think healthcare is just going to be revolutionized in the next 10, 20, 30 years. I think it's going to be, a, I think when we're going to look back to 2018, and it's, it's going to seem very archaic. It's going to look like fax machines and it's going to look like newspapers and, and it's, it's going to be that archaic. I think that's, that is the difference, I believe, in my opinion, that the next 20, 10, 20, 30 years is going to be in terms of healthcare. I think it's going to be almost unrecognizable. Yeah, I agree. I'd be interested to even find out some uh, companies on the share market in the US that are actually you know, dabbling on this because I actually think there's going to be a lot of money to be made in preventative healthcare. But yeah, interesting. Well, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. And I actually... and. As usual, I don't give financial advice on this podcast. I just talk about um, aspects generally. But you know, one of the thing, one of the, the the reasons why I think Google, which is 
the parent company's renamed itself a couple of years ago as Alphabet, I think is a good stock for anyone to hold in their portfolio is because they're dabbling in a lot of different areas. And currently still, I don't know, 95, 96% of their revenue still comes from AdWords, right, which is nuts. But one day they are going to hit on another gold mine somewhere. And if you own Google stock and they hit on another gold mine somewhere, it's going to go nuts. So um, if you do like to dabble a bit with stocks, um, don't take my advice. I'm not licensed to give advice, but check out the Alphabet stock. Speaking of which, Snapchat's shares, wow, that got hit by um, the Kardashians, right? Did you see that story last week? I did hear something about it, yeah. Alongside the redesign as well, it's not particularly popular. Yeah, I think one of the Kardashians said that uh, she doesn't use Snapchat anymore and the Snap share price just uh, dropped, I don't know, 5 10%. I didn't follow it exactly. It's not one of the stocks that I follow in detail. But uh, that's that's what's known as being an influencer. You know, we chat a lot about being an influencer on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, that's definitely being an influencer when um, you can mention a stock and you move the share price. So... Uh, love them or hate them, um, she's definitely got clout. That was quite interesting, that. Yeah, uh, there must be other factors too. But yeah, I guess it would be a big a big part. Like a lot of those celebrities would play a big role in Snapchat and keeping people there. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I mean, as you said, they, they, a lot of people are, I believe, unhappy with the, the redesign. And I think her comments were on the back of that, I believe, saying that, that she doesn't like the redesign, it's not going to use it anymore. But anyway, we, we digress. Um, another interesting uh, article, um, bike sharing services. Now, these have popped up around Sydney over the last six months or so. I mean, I think there's two or three different companies here where they dockless bike sharing services. So whereas New York's had one for a while, but you actually have to put it in a docking station. And it's been incredibly successful in New York. And uh, the ones in Sydney, though, are dockless, so you can just leave them anywhere. And they're very controversial because visual pollution, um, sort of putting landing up in the wrong place, you know, no structure around the process. And I believe that um, there's one of the companies in France has actually just pulled out, one of these dockless bike-sharing services has actually pulled out of France because of the, the sort of uh, controversial nature of it all. Yeah, so it's actually a Hong Kong company uh, called Gobi. And yeah, they, they basically started putting the service in France and have just removed them completely uh, recently due to like a mass destruction of the fleet. So they started with about 2,000 bikes, uh, 150,000 users, and about half of those bikes have been stolen or damaged. Half of them, that's, that's, that's pretty significant. Yeah, so it's sort of a bit of a... Not so much a movement, but a trend at the moment for young, underaged vandals to take on these bikes, uh, put them in trees, throw them in rivers. And there's much bigger supply than there is demand because people have to have these bikes in really convenient locations, basically. So you can dump it outside the front of your office. You can dump it in front of your home. Wherever you want to dump them, basically, you can leave it there. But if it's not in an area where another user is going to come and pick it up, then then it just gets left there. And so they need to produce more bikes as the bikes get spread out and dispersed across the city. So this is sort of a problem that a lot of these dockless biking stations are having. Um, and even 
uh, one of the ones in Australia, I believe, they they did a bit of a, a clean-up and there was a 42 bikes inside a river in Melbourne. Yeah, I have to say I don't understand the phenomenon of destroying these bikes. I, I just don't understand it. I mean, there's ways in today's world to protest, particularly with your dollar, if you, you just don't support it or get petitions or go to... I, I just don't understand this phenomenon of destroying them and throwing them away and putting them in trees. And it just seems, you know... But it's sort of a similar thing. Like, you know, it's the same idea as graffiti. You know, if something's in a public place and it's accessible and there's no, um, you know, particular ownership over something, then, yeah, people people destroy things. Like, I'm not a particularly big fan. I mean, I know in Brisbane they had the docking station ones, which worked quite well, but you can only take them within a certain radius around the city. But the dockless ones, like when I was back in Sydney in November, they're just messy, they're all over the place. Like, I'm not, I'm not a fan. I think, do you know, I mean, in Melbourne, apparently, there are nearly 30,000 people every day that cycle to work. The idea is great. Cycling is great. And I think dockless bikes, I think to me, reminds me a lot of Uber, like when Uber first came out and uh, there was, you know, th- there was a, a lot of parts of the community had issues with it. And I think I think as long as there's guidelines for the dockless bikes, I think it could work. I mean, I, I think it's anything that gets cars off the road, anything that gets people moving, I personally don't know what the fuss is. And, uh, and I think if there is a fuss, I think destroying bikes is not the answer to solving the problem. I mean, I think that's just, that's just the wrong way of going about things. Sure. I don't know that it is a particular protest either. I think it's just the fact that they're lying there. They're just there. Without and a chain. Yeah. Yep. Yep. They're accessible. Like you can paint them, you can cut them up, throw them in the river, do whatever you want with them. And people who are bored on the streets, yeah, it's easy for them to pick them up. I, yeah, I'm not a fan of, I'm a fan of cycling to work and cycling around, sure, and getting cars off the road, but these, like, they're not very well planned at all. I was surprised when I came to Sydney, the amount that were just dumped in the streets, on the curbs. Like, I'm surprised people don't get hit, they don't scratch other people's cars and all sorts of things, you know, I just, nah. Put them in a docking station, that seems to be the way to go. Look, in New York, it's worked with docking stations, but Manhattan is an unusually dense environment. So it's easy to put a lot of docking stations that are easily accessible. I think the challenge with a spread out city like Sydney is that to put enough docking stations so that it is useful is tricky. Because if you just put one or two docking stations or three docking stations, people just won't use it because they, it's, they would have to cycle too far away from their location. So the utility, I think, is so you can go almost from point to point. And maybe there's a happy medium somewhere. Maybe there's some other solution that can be found where it's not a full docking station, but there's some guidelines. I don't know. You know, Maybe there's some sort of areas that, that are allocated for, for, for bikes, et cetera. But look, I mean, the community needs to engage and, and together with the companies and they can come up with a solution. As always, these things are work in progress. But I think more bikes are good. And, yeah, the community together with the companies can come up with a solution as to, as to what works. And when I first saw them, I, I sort of got, you know, like I, it definitely was visual pollution and sort of was 
definitely a bit uh, confused why suddenly all these bikes were standing in in weird places. But in having to, spoken to a lot of my friends, not a lot, but a, f- a couple of my friends that now use them as, I wouldn't say their main form of transport, but they use them significant, like a significant amount and understanding how they use them. And I see a lot of young people actually as well use them, which is, I think, great on the weekends in particular. So they de- they're definitely getting used as well. So that's the flip side of the debate. But anyway, let's see what uh, let's see what happens on that side of. Uh, I think the councils, as far as I know, in Sydney are getting together and having talks with these companies. So I think some of the councils are not that happy, but they are, yeah, encouraging of cycling in general, and they are wanting to find some solutions. So I think there is progress in Sydney, at least in terms of you know being very pragmatic about a, a middle pathway forward. So, yeah, we'll see what it what it will bring. I mean, on that transport notes as well, I see in California this week, it was a quite significant statement that for the first time, California is allowing true autonomous vehicles. And what that means is, so California and a couple of other states have actually allowed self-driving cars or autonomous vehicles for quite a while. But apparently they needed accessible human accessible steering wheels and brakes and you know in in case of you know for safety reasons but apparently this month they've actually green lighted full driverless cars for testing purposes so cars without steering wheels without brakes obviously they've got some steering mechanisms and braking mechanisms they're just not humanly accessible so that's that's sort of really a, an, an interesting step forward to be sitting in a car where you're absolutely reliant. There's you, you can't you can't brake or steer even if you needed to. Um, how would you feel about hopping in one of those, Kate? I would probably have to watch it before I got in one. Like I would have to drive around amongst them and and witness how they reacted in you know, life or death situations and emergencies, things like that, to see eventually it could build up my trust. But I wouldn't just jump in one and test it, no. Apparently in California there's uh, 50 companies testing nearly 300 autonomous vehicles. So Mm. It'd be interesting to see what something like Uber does with them. Oh, yeah. Look, I mean, obviously a big, big incentive for Uber to uh, have self-driving cars because their margins would just bump – you know, I, I'm not exactly sure the percentage that Uber drivers get. I'm not sure if it's 60% or 50 or it's quite significant. So, mm. yeah, that's a, that's also a very – and as I've mentioned before on the podcast many times, to me the most exciting area is uh, safety. Autonomous vehicles will just cut, cut road deaths down. Just, mm. you know, in Australia there's regularly single vehicle road crashes into trees and things, fatigue, etc. All of those are just going to disappear. So that'll be great. Yeah, there's always the trolley problem there about, you know, who do you program the car to hit if it had to hit someone? Yeah, yeah. Look, they're, Like they're, how, do you, how do you ethically choose, you know, if, if the car had to swerve in an emergency and on one side was a four-year-old child and the other side was a 94-year-old grandmother, what are you going to tell the algorithm to do? Yeah, there are a couple of these ethical concerns. Um, hopefully... Hopefully they they edge cases these ethical concerns and they won't um, these autonomous vehicles won't hit up against them 
uh, pardon the poor use of words, hopefully they won't come across them incredibly frequently. It's, uh, you know, uh, mostly I think they'll have the most problems in the crossover between once everyone's in autonomous vehicles, I think it'll be fine. But while you've got a mix, a hybrid of both, like people driving and autonomous, like there's going to be problems there. It'd be great. You you can't. People won't be able to road rage against an autonomous vehicle because you're just screaming at a machine, right? So it's in some ways it's more frustrating. It is right. It's like why doesn't this computer work? And the computer just doesn't respond. But yeah. So anyway, those are the news stories for episode number one one four. If you haven't heard any of our previous episodes, and if you're first time listening to this podcast, a special welcome to you. And uh, go to itsamonkey.com. And there are plenty of previous episodes, 113 to be exact. We've interviewed people like David Hanemeyer Hansen, a very outspoken CTO of Basecamp, people like Melanie Perkins, um, CEO of Canva, and a whole range of other uh, interesting people. So go and check out those podcasts. We're going to take a short break, and then I'm going to play the interview that I did with Vincent Lotempio, who is a registered patent attorney. We spoke a bit about intellectual property law and tech startups and we also had an interesting chat about vincent's life which uh, had a few twists and turns as well so stick around hi my name is joe pinto i'm the business operations manager here at manage flitter did you know that manage flitter can help you quickly and cheaply build an organic following on twitter let me explain in six easy steps step one find new prospects on twitter with power mode Manage Flitter's advanced Twitter search feature. Step two, easily filter and sort results to find the most relevant Twitter accounts for you to follow. Step three, follow these Twitter accounts using Manage Flitter's simple interface. Step four, unfollow accounts that do not follow you back within 14 days. Step five, watch your Twitter follower numbers grow as high quality accounts follow you back. Step six, rinse and repeat to maintain consistent organic Twitter account growth. Feel free to drop by manageflitter.com to trial our product or email us at contact at manageflitter.com to schedule an obligation-free walkthrough. You're back with It's a Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the co-founder and CEO of Manage Flitter. Now, I know a lot of you listening to the show are entrepreneurs, wannabe entrepreneurs. And uh, one thing that I get asked about every now and then is, uh, is intellectual property, patenting, trademarks. It's, it's one of these less obvious areas of entrepreneurship that's, um, that's a little bit fuzzy. And I was actually at an event last night in Sydney listening to a couple of entrepreneurs talk, which was uh, about their journeys. And there was a woman who's built a successful business on um, specialized baby wraps. I mean, it's quite interesting in technology. We've so focused on all these internet businesses, but there's a whole world of businesses out there that have nothing to do uh, or very little to do with technology. And she mentioned how she was very lucky that she patented her 
designs because all over the world they're constantly ripping her off and and even some of the very big retailers in the US she has sent cease and desist letters to so it was quite fortuitous that we had planned a chat today with uh, Vincent Lotempio who's a partner in the law firm Klaus Stenger and Lotempio and he's a co-author of the book Patent Fundamentals for Scientists and Engineers Vincent thanks so much for joining us I believe from upstate New York right Yes, yes, Western New York. I'm right near Niagara Falls, Buffalo area, and I really appreciate the opportunity to, to join you with all your listeners. Appreciate the time. Whenever I think of upstate New York, I just think of cold weather for some reason. Yeah, that's what everybody does, but we don't get credit for our, our beautiful summers that we average between 75 and 80 degrees where it doesn't get so hot and you can go outside with a T-shirt and not have to wear a coat. And to me, that's the perfect weather. But you're right. It's 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 in the Januarys and December and February. It's it's in the teens and there's a lot of snow. I've actually been to Beacon. I've got a couple of friends up in Beacon, which is, I think, about uh, a couple of hours north of New York. And I think what most people don't realize, particularly Australians, Australians love New York and they love L.A. and they, they travel a lot. But what most Australians don't realize that if you hop on a train at Penn Station and head north for two hours, you are in the wilderness. And most no one ever tells people that, are, that head into Manhattan and Brooklyn that fact. Well, that's absolutely true. And if you keep going north, you'll end up in Montreal. And it's a beautiful drive in the fall when all the foliage is changing colors. It's just a gorgeous place to be. Yeah, I know uh, in the fall, which we call autumn, it's a, it's a big thing to go look at the leaves. And uh, I definitely like to see more of uh, that part of the world, particularly Montreal, particularly since the, all the French Canadians that I meet every now and then in Sydney um, just seem incredibly wonderful and wonderfully warm people. So, But anyway, we digress. Let's talk about the, the real world, um, uh, Vincent. One thing that I'd like to get straight into is the patent side of things. I mean, we can touch a little bit about trademarks later, but trademarks, I think everyone gets a little bit, uh, it sort of has an intuitive feel. It's, it's logos and, and uh, um, you know, bylines and things like that. But patents, especially as they ap- apply to software, just seems like a bit of an opaque world, even for people in the software and the online industry. Can you sort of take us through a little bit about how patents are relevant to tech startups and are they in fact relevant to tech startups? Well, of course, they're they're very relevant and it's a problem right now, with especially in the United States with the Supreme Court's um, recent rulings on abstract ideas. And, and that's a big reason for you hear patent wars. If you just Google patent wars, you see Sony and Motorola and all the big, you know, IBM, they're all trying to knock each other's patents out based on the recent Supreme Court rulings. And basically what the Supreme Court is saying is that an abstract idea in itself isn't patentable. And there has to be some tie to the real world, which is kind of ironic because just a couple of minutes ago, you said, let's get back into the real world. And and that's <laughs> what the Supreme Court is trying to 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 get the uh, the techies to do is it's not just an idea on the on an app that makes your your idea work faster. If it's something that could happen in the real world and all you're doing is putting it through the computer and making it go faster, they're saying that's not going to be patentable. You have to tie it to the real world. When the first case came out, I think it was called the the Bilski-Bilski case, they, they basically said you wanted to see some sort of machine or transformation of matter test to see that something is happening outside the uh, the phone, like the the Uber patent that came out, you know, there's something else that's happening outside your phone. You're getting picked up. You're being driven around. It's the method 
that that goes along with it. You know, one of the the big startups in the computer industry, the biggest startups ever, was Apple with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. And, and uh, one of the first things they did, they tried to get patents for their software and their hardware, but they didn't have the money for it because they were just startups. So what they did was try to protect their ideas originally with copyrights. So when you when you write a an algorithm or you write code, um, it's just like writing a book. It has its own language, and you can actually get a copyright on the the algorithm or the code of the of the of the software, and nobody can copy it identically. But the patent, um, as opposed to the copyright, protects what it how it functions, what it does. So somebody could rewrite the code and do it, you know, and end up having the same function and not be infringing on your copyright. So that's why a copyright isn't the greatest, you know, solution for that. But but it is a solution. It's a way to at least put a one, you know, roadblock in front of your competitors and stop them from copying your your idea. And like you said, the trademark is is more of like a it's called a source indicator. It, it's just a mark on your product. And I'm sure every techie is aware of the Intel sticker on the computer that says, you know, there's an Intel chip inside of here. It's basically telling the consumer that uh, the manufacturer of this product is this Intel. It's kind of like going into the, you know, the sporting goods store, Dick's Sporting Goods, and buying a pair of Nike sneakers. And you know that only Nike could put this mark on the sneaker. So you as a consumer are protected and you as the as the producer of the good, the manufacturer of the good is protected too, because now nobody can can copy your idea or, or your trademark or sell 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 a product, you know, with your goodwill. Let's go back to you mentioned Uber. Uber's a, a good one to draw down into just as an example. Everyone's familiar with the brand and the and the product. So say Uber raised some funds for their for their concept, Travis Kalelnik in San Francisco, and he hired some developers and they started cutting code on this app, right? Now, what exactly are they going to patent? You mentioned you can't copyright the actual – or you can, but it's, it's almost nonsensical to copyright the actual code because someone can code it up in a different manner and achieve the same end result. So what are you – what would Uber actually – patents and how you know what what are they actually protecting are they protecting the fact that they came up with an idea but you can't really patent an idea so talk us through a little bit about how it works in the real world i guess maybe using uber as a theoretical example yeah and i i could send you the uber patent in a pdf and perhaps you can post it for your listeners to pull up and take a look at how exactly they did it and what they claim to be their invention. And you're absolutely correct when you say ideas aren't patentable, things are, you know, the actual thing. So, you know, if you were the first person to come up with the idea for a flip phone in 1964 on Star Trek, they, they, you know, Captain Kirk pulled it out and said, be me up, Scotty. You wouldn't be able to get the patent on that idea because you couldn't make one. You have to be able to make it and use it and describe how to make it and use it. So, just like the Uber app, you know, the, the inventor has to describe how somebody skilled in the art in this particular art is, is taxi cab driving and, and apps to, to make communication between, you know, riders and drivers and, and being able to pay could, could make and use it. So if you look at the patent and like I said, hopefully you could, there's a way you can post it or I could put it up on a link, uh, on my site that sure. it, uh, I know the slug is the Tempio law slash monkey for anybody that wants to go take a look at 
you know, my website and, you know, and things I can post it onto that website as well. But, but you have to describe it in a way to somebody to make and use it and how they did it. And you'll, you'll see on the patent is through, through algorithms and flow charts, you know, it just basically, mm-hmm. it's like step by step. It's, it's almost like a, you know, a recipe to, to bake a cake and just walking through all the steps that it takes and all the ingredients and all the screenshots. And you'll see the screenshots on the patent and describing it, you know, step by step. And, and so it's the overall method is what you're patenting in, in this situation, a method or a system. It, it's not any specific piece of hardware. It's not any specific part of, you know, one step or, you know, like you've seen before where they, they got the patent on, um, you know, one-click shopping when they first, you know, the first person who invented that, um, they got the patent for that. But but it's not just that one-click, it's the whole method in general. And and like I said, you go through it step-by-step step using action verbs and, and you uh, describe it, you know, starting the app and entering your information and you know, providing some sort of uh, credit card for, for payment, you know, and they just go through each and every solitary step and they describe it. So it's not just the general idea. It's, it's, it's a thing. And then how, how does it work then, Vincent, that the Uber has competitors, which in a way are not that dissimilar. Their, their software might work differently. It might not be as good. How does a competitor product manage to um, launch themselves without infringing that patent? You know, and that's, all, that's always the question um, asked. If somebody just changes it a little bit, am I going to be still protected? And, you know, and I can't give you a legal opinion as to why, what is it called, Lyft or something is the other, is one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, why one mm-hmm. of the other competitors are able to do that. Um, maybe they're, like you said, maybe their patent is, is on one specific p- part of it. And, and I don't know what it is, but essentially what happens is you claim your invention in the patent application. It's actually called a claim. And in your claim, you describe what are the elements of your patent. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult with a long, long list of elements to, to not to have every element. But to make it simple, a simple example of, of infringement would be, let's just say you were the first person to invent the table. You were sick of eating off the stones and the you're a caveman and you got the first table and you have the patent for the table. And we wrote the patent for you and the patent was it's got a top, a bottom and four legs coming out of the corners. So if, if you were to, if someone else was to make a table with three legs, would, would that infringe on our patent? What do you think? Um, it depends how materially different it is, right? Well, yeah. Well, we just said our claim says it's got a ta- it's got a top, a bottom, and four legs, and you're making one with three legs, so it's it's different. You don't have all the elements, so so you wouldn't be infringing. But we wouldn't really care if you made a table with three legs because it's not going to work very well, and no one's going to buy the table with with three legs. If you made a table with five legs. We would say you're still infringing because you got a top, a bottom, and four legs. If you put a thousand legs on it in a in a uh, um, pencil sharpener on the top of it, you would still be infringing as long as you had the top and the bottom and the four legs. So, so infringement basically is is how well you claim your patent of what what your idea is, and then the question is whether or not they copy that thing. So they could they could add stuff to it, and it's not going to change it. But they they have to in order to to not infringe, they have to take things away. So the whole idea is when you're drafting the patent, it's to draft it so it won't work. If if it was, you know, if they took if they took a piece away from it, it wouldn't work as well, or it wouldn't work at all. And so 
So who knows exactly what happened with, with the other competitors. And there's also the possibility that the other competitors were sued by Uber and they worked out a licensing agreement and they worked out a payment scheme. Who, who knows, I mean, what happened in those particular you know, cases. And of course, a patent, I mean, a patent actually makes their process public, right? That's that if I if I remember correctly, I'm, and I'm definitely not a, a legal scholar, but if I remember correctly, one of the reasons that the patent system was developed was a compromise or a, a trade off that society gets public knowledge of uh, the, the innovative process. Um, in return, the, the inventor gets an exclusivity over executing that idea for a fixed period of time. And after a certain period of time, that idea goes into the public domain. Is that correct? Yeah, I couldn't have said it any better. Absolutely. I mean, so the whole idea is that we want society to advance. And the only way we, we can advance is if we have a free flow of ideas. And why should anybody give their idea up unless they get something back. So you have a head start, you have that monopoly um, to start off with the idea. But but the whole idea, and every patent is written exactly the same way. There's a problem out there. People have tried to solve the problem in the past. This is how they failed, and this is how I do it a little bit better. So you basically made an improvement on it. And that's the whole idea is to is to get ideas flowing and get people to keep up, keep coming up with better and better ideas and and then as a, as a society as a whole, we grow. So I'm looking at, uh, I quickly Googled Uber Uber patents and there's an answer on the Quora website and someone's listed. Um, they've got several, probably one, two, three, four, probably about 20 patents in this, this question range. I'll just read some of the titles quickly. Uh, providing a summary or receipt for on-demand services through use of portable computing devices. Let's see one of the more interesting ones. Determining a location related to on-demand services through use of portable computing devices. So they, they seem to be covering a lot of their bases. And I would imagine you know, a lot of these companies that we're talking about have very deep pockets. At what stage should a tech startup actually consider the patent side of things? Is it when they are making money already? Is it before? I mean, I, I, everyone I know with their own tech startup hasn't actually patented anything. Yeah, and that's that's the big problem is because the rule is pretty much everywhere in the world is the same as the first person to file gets the patent application. So gets the patent. So if you file an application, even though you invented it first, if somebody filed it before you, you could lose your rights. So if you, in order to start making money, you obviously have to start using it in public and showing it to people. And now you're at risk that someone's going to take it from you. There is also a rule in the United States that says that from the time that you offer it for sale, you use it in public or you publish it anywhere in the world, you have one year to file your patent application. So if you miss that deadline, if you miss that deadline, you lose all your patent rights. So that's, I just wrote an article for a local um, business paper here, Buffalo Business First, about Kickstarter and how it can affect patent rights. I mean, there's it's like the chicken and the egg argument. Do I do I start selling it and, and getting people to know about it so I can ask for more money? Or do I, you know, and even if I just ask for money um, on Kickstarter to, to um, support this venture, um, will I be losing my patent rights? But nobody's going to give me money unless I tell them what it is. So what do I do? I mean, in the United States, they have a provisional patent application where you can file relatively cheaper just to... to um, Preserve patent rights. You could gives you one year to file the actual patent, so it stops the the clock from ticking. 
So you could file your non-provisional within a year. So that's one way to go about it is to, to file this provisional to give you a chance to go out there and try to market it. And I know startups, their biggest concern is they're bleeding money and nothing's coming in and, and, and patents could be relatively expensive. I would say if it costs you $10,000 to protect something that's making $10 million, it's not a lot of money. But if you're paying... Protect, you know, spending ten thousand dollars to protect something that's not making any money, you might as well be ten million dollars because you just don't have that kind of money to spend. So, so yeah, it's it's a conundrum, and one of the ways the United States has tried to deal with it is to to allow, um, you know, inventors to file this provisional patent application. Yeah, I, I have known some new entrepreneurs that the first thing they start to do is is register their trademark and try to get patents and i'm like no no it's that's definitely the wrong sequence of events you don't even know if one person's going to part with their dollar yet you really are trying to protect nothing at the moment so definitely definitely hold on out um, yeah, i agree with you 100 percent and i you know, I, I have people coming into me, inventors that want to protect it throughout the world, you know, and they have these great dreams that it's going to be a worldwide product. And I'm like, you know, that type of thing, the PCT, it's the Patent Cooperation Treaty, is an expensive proposition. And only big companies that actually have sales are really equipped to do something like that, not, you know, startups with, with not a big dollar amount. You know, but that's not always true. I mean, I have uh, a client that just filed one in in a PCT and filed a, you know, companion application in the UK and in Europe. And he's got a great idea that, that they're already pitching and they're already getting licensing agreements on and it's, and it's working out for them. And they're actually, they have, they have money coming in. So I guess, you know, and I always say ideas themselves don't sell, people sell the idea. So I guess it, it, it depends on how good of a, a marketer you are. So, so the inventor, the techie, the guy that comes up with a new idea, he's, he has one skill, and that's to come up with ideas, and he's very bright and creative. But but what do you need to do with any product or service? You have to do three things. You have to be able to, to manufacture it, you have to be able to market it, and you have to be able to distribute it. So if you can't do all those three things, you, you're going to have to become like a general contractor and get somebody else to do those for you. Or, you know, that big angel or venture capitalist that's that's capable of doing all those things that's it's ready to part with their money to to push this idea you know i always say unless your idea is so drastic that you know something like uh you come up with a new gasoline that you can put in your car and get fifty thousand miles to the gallon you only have to fill it up once in your whole life that would sell itself but most people's ideas are you know put this this new substance in your gasoline and you get a couple more miles and your engine drives a little cleaner, but you still got to convince the consumer to go and buy it and mix it up and put it in the tank. It's not, it just doesn't sell itself. Yeah. It's uh, protection. Protection only gives you value uh, and it would be directly proportional to the, the amount of uh, unique value proposition that you're protecting. Right. So uh, otherwise, yeah, protecting something itself is not going to create a business for you. Yeah, and a lot of people think that they're going to create their own market because it's a new thing that's totally there and it's just going to pop up. I find that if there's a, um, there's a, there is a you know, long-felt need, something that people are really looking for to solve this problem, works better than, than somebody coming up with a new idea that's, that's like people aren't even thinking about. It just doesn't, you know, it's almost like, you know, I always, I'm always losing my car keys underneath the couch. Is there a way to find them? You know, that's, you know, that's something that everybody's using, but, 
maybe, you know, I don't know, an example of I come up with a new nail to hang up a, a picture to, that uh, um, it makes it 10 times easier to hang pictures. Well, nails are working, been working since, you know, since Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. It's, you know, they're not, nobody's really looking for a new way to hang a picture. They're happy with the way they're, they're hanging pictures right now. And, and the company that's going to make these machines are going to, are saying, why should we change all our machines, all our manufacturing and everything when, when people are still just going to be buying the straight nail and just to hang the picture. So, so sometimes you're trying to create a need that's really not even there. And it's, and even though it might be the greatest nail in the world and it works so much better than the other nail, it's, it's never going to sell. And, and, and that's, that's a big problem. I would say no one ever comes to my office and says, I have a terrible idea. No one's going to like it. Everybody's in love with their idea. One of the things you probably should do is just go to somebody that's totally neutral, not your mother or your best friend and ask them, you know, would this be a great idea? And and don't be afraid to have your, your feelings hurt that it's, you know, not something that people are looking for. You know, this so many things have to fall in place to, to have that universal product. You know, I have one client that has a universal product. I, I worked with the guy who invented the selfie stick, and uh, I actually was um, interviewed on the National um, History Channel show called The Million Dollar Genius. It was called The Selfie Made Man, the show. And uh, he basically came up with the idea on a bridge in, in Florence over the uh, on the Point of Vecchio with his daughter trying to take a picture of themselves in, in the early 2000s. And, uh, and he ended up selling, you know, $2 million worth of selfie sticks on QVC in the first couple of years. It, it turned out that... Uh, he had a, a need that everybody was looking to do the same thing. And then with the advent of, uh, you know, the iPhone and the reversible camera, it really just, you know, took off to another level. But uh, it's, 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 you know, very few people come up with these universal ideas that just are capable of taking off. But uh, it's just the nature of the beast. And, and a lot of people think um, that a business is all about finding the right idea, but it's actually just all about execution. I always tell people if, if they want a successful business, I can almost guarantee them that if they would start up a successful, at least in Australia, in the market that I know the best, a successful plumbing or carpentry or electrical business, have excellent customer service and provide a good service, I can almost guarantee they'll be booked out week after week. And, and there's no new idea in that at all. It's all about the execution of that idea. So, you know, ideas are, ideas are a dime a dozen. People often say, oh, you know, I thought of that Uber idea before Uber did it. Well, it's, it's absolutely meaningless if you did nothing with it. So it's just everything is is execution and there's execution has opportunities for innovation along the way in a million different ways the way you hire people the type of people you hire your your strategic decisions your technical decisions so uh, that's definitely why i recommend people if they want to get into business the best thing to do is is do it even if it's just selling a few things at the markets or or something simple like that but vincent tell me patents how long do they last for as a matter of interest is it a hundred years no no that's more like a copyright a copyright is uh 70 years plus the life you know so as long as you're alive in right. 70 years after and that's and that was changed uh because disney died and they extended it out it used to be 55 years it was the sunny bono act but uh patents is 20 years from the date that you file it and you have to pay maintenance okay, and fees, and, and that's in the U.S. And different countries have different rules, but it's generally about the same. Most European countries ask that you pay, start paying your royalties or your maintenance fees um, immediately from the time that you file it. 
the U.S., they, they ask you to pay your maintenance fees after you get the patent, and then the fourth, the eighth, and the twelfth year, approximately. It's really the third, three and a half, seven and a half, and in 11 and a half, but you have six months to pay it by the end of the, without, without having to pay a, a surcharge. So, and those, those fees get higher as it goes on. And I imagine 12 years from now, they're going to be even higher than they are today. So those are, that's um, the time limit for patents. Um, and it comes with maintenance fees. Of course, if you're not making money, you don't pay it. If you are, then you pay those maintenance fees. I had a client that had uh, about 15 patents throughout the world and their maintenance fee for their 17th year was like $40,000. So mm. it gets it gets to become expensive, especially if you have worldwide patents. Trademark lasts forever. Um, you just basically, like Canada, I think it's every 15 years you have to pay a maintenance fee. U.S., it's every 10 years. Um, I think the, it's every 10 years as well for the European countries. Um, I could be wrong on that date, but essentially it's around 10 or 15 years, every 10 or 15 years, you... Or your, you know, your company, the entity has to pay those maintenance fees, and and trademarks aren't like um, domain names where you can just sit on them and 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 just not do anything. You actually have to actively be selling a product or a service using that trademark in order to maintain it. So when you file your um, your maintenance fees, you'll also have to file a statement of use swearing that you've been using the mark and it's been, and here's an example of how we're using it. And you'll have to show like the Intel chip, you'll have to show a computer with a tag on the outside of it, a picture of that to show here's an example of how the consumer sees the mark when we sell a product or sell a computer with our product inside of it. Um, that would be an example of what you'd have to do. So copyrights last for a very long time. Trademarks could last forever, like Coca-Cola, as long as they're in existence, will keep renewing their trademark and and patents are, are limited to, to 20 years. So let's quickly talk about trademarks because that is uh, probably one of the aspects of intellectual property that is relatively relatively straightforward, relatively inexpensive, and actually provides quite a bit of value. So trademarks, you can trademark a, uh, a logo, I believe, and, and your name, your company name, but does that need to be linked with the logo? Yeah, I mean, really, if they say your the name is not what you're trademarking, you're just you're just. Uh -huh. uh, they say a, a trademark is a source indicator. It's a way to indicate to the public what who the the producer is, who the manufacturer of the good is. So, I mean, it turns out to be you know you'll put Sony on your on all your goods and and it'll be your mark, then your which happens to be the the name of the company as well. But there's a, a variety of things that you can trademark. I mean, um, UPS trademarks. Uh, the color brown of all everything that they do is just their mark. You know, it's a, it's considered like a trade dress. The look of of how their trucks are, those brown trucks. You could trademark a smell. I think Liz Taylor trademarked her perfume. NBC trademarked uh, the name or the sound of, uh, you know, that I, I can't say it, but uh, the sound when the when the little uh, symbol comes up, the embassy symbol, and you hear like a bing, bing, bong, you know, type of a sound. That sound was mm -hmm, trademarked. Mm -hmm. the, the Tarzan roar was trademarked. The, the lion for MGM, it, uh, that sound was was a, a registered trademark. So you, you could trade a, a mark a color like the bottom of the shoe of Christine Lobaton, those red bottom shoes. That's their trademark. Y nobody else could, could make those shoes with the red bottoms. So... There's, there's a lot of different things, including, like you said, the logo, the, the Nike swoosh, the design, the words itself, um, the words plus the design. 
And those are all different examples of, of um, things that you could register as a trademark. In 1964, Coca-Cola registered the shape of the Coca-Cola bottle as trade dress. And so nobody else can make that bottle, you know, make the look of that bottle. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, I do recommend, uh, especially once you've got a little bit of traction to, to talk with someone about uh, trademarking and patents, I, I think, on the software side is a little bit more complicated. And, and I'm not saying it, it couldn't be of value, but I've, I've yet to hear of a, a smallish tech startup that has, that has materially benefited from that. But I'm not, I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. So go and do your own homework. Um, Vincent, I also... Um, I also believe early on in life you you had a bit of a, a misfortune that you managed to bounce back from. And I, I found that quite interesting because a lot of people that listen to our podcast are people that are trying to, you know, be the best version of themselves and, and push themselves forward and overcome diversi- uh, uh, adversity and uh, build resilience. So tell us a little bit about that and um, how you, you manage that and how, how it's influenced your life and impacted your life. Yeah, um, what you're referring to, I guess, is the day I lost my hand in, in 1972 I was 12 years old I had uh, I was making uh, sausage in a meat grinder and I lost my balance and I went in and my hand didn't come out I thought maybe I lost a finger or two but it, it nothing came out except for uh, I don't want to be too graphic here but uh, you could imagine what it looked like if it was just gone and uh, um, I was in the hospital for a week it was Sunday to Sunday and then uh, on Thursday I still couldn't even walk they were still feeding me intravenously but uh, on Wednesday, I went and got my bowling ball redrilled, and I went bowling on Saturday. So essentially, I missed one week of bowling. That was because I was still in the hospital on Saturday. And you know, nobody can believe I still had stitches and a big scab on my arm, and I was going to go bowling. Six years later, I was 18 years old. And I was bowling on the Division One um, bowling team for my college, Canisius College, and I played baseball for my high, my my uh, high school team, and I you know, played tennis and ice hockey. So it never really slowed me down. I basically made a decision at that point in my life. And it was, you know, I was just a young boy that, you know, you just have to continue to keep living. I don't know. It's, it's maybe a spiritual thing. You speak to God. It's not like we're talking you and I right now, back and forth. It's like a million words in one second. When something like that happens to you, your body just, uh, goes through a shock. And, and my mother was right there and I had to, uh, tell her I'm okay. I'm okay. Don't worry about it. So I had to grow up pretty quick and I didn't shed one tear and I just kept going. And, and, and I guess from that date on, I just felt like nothing was, you know, could stop you. You could just do anything you wanted to. I, I went to, I became a lawyer. Um, my first job was a district attorney and I wasn't real happy prosecuting crime. And, and, um, you know, I, I didn't, I thought it was an honorable job. It was a public servant, but I, I just knew I didn't want to do that the rest of my life. So at 35 years old, I went back to school and I got a degree in chemistry and I took the patent bar at 40. And now I've been doing this for like the last 18 years. And it's, it's just the ability to say that, you know, at any time you could reinvent yourself and you could change no matter how bad the situation is, you can bounce back from it. Um, and, and, and the whole goal, I think for any startup or any entrepreneur is to, is to fight through all the adversity, have that persistence and and the never say die in your belly and just keep going. And even if you, if you don't succeed, it's the, the life lessons that you get from it. So even I've seen a lot of people come to me with their first and second ideas that don't go anywhere, but they learn so many lessons about marketing and distribution and, and manufacturing that when they finally do 
come across the right idea that all those life lessons that they had, you know, going into it really helped them become that success that they were at the end. So, so I guess that's the, the lesson from all that is, is just, you just keep fighting no matter what the situation. Well, that's definitely, definitely inspirational. And I think it's a, it's a cliche, but everything's about attitude and perspective. And uh, I, I heard a very successful Israeli entrepreneur talk um, last year sometime. And I think he was the, the, he was the creator of the USB, sort of the, the micro USB drive, right? Then he did, and they got bought by some, I think, SanDisk, and, and they ultimately made, made fortunes. But um, he spoke about the times where the, you know, two or three times where the business nearly fell over. And he, and he just said every business has a near-death experience. And it's very easy if you, a business owner or entrepreneur, it's 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 very easy to to feel like it's. I mean, even the CEO of Twitter, the the ex CEO Dick, Dick Costello, I remember hearing on a podcast interview with him, where he said sometimes he he you know wakes up and he thinks why why are all the other CEOs finding this so easy and I'm finding this so difficult, you know. So it's it's uh, it's. It is. We all have moments, and especially in the entrepreneurial game, you know, we have to have this strange mixture of optimism, but we also, you know, things don't go our way, and it's managing our own psychology as is an incredibly important part of the journey. Yeah, and, and I uh, that near death experience, you know, and I had it. And I guess that that's important, and you hear so many like the World War II veterans or, or Vietnam veterans come back, and they've they've experienced that near death, and they figure there's nothing that can happen to me that that's worse than it already has. And so why not go out there and, you know, let it loose and, and take any chances that are necessary in business. And those are the people that end up becoming very successful. Yeah. And, and, and uh, when he was saying near death experience, he was, he was referring to every business. I think he wasn't referring in that specific case to, to, to a, literal, a literal near yeah, death experience. But, uh, but I think that's true but, though. But, I mean, just, it's like, you know, you've come so close and, you know, it's like nothing, you can't get any worse than this. And even in the business, you know, I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Tipping Point, you know, but, but sure. they talk about it, you know, are you, there's got to be a time where you either give up or and you just hope you're not right above, right by the tipping point where it's just about to turn over and you just keep thinking that it's going to come. So it's a tough decision to, to decide when you're, you know, when it is good money after bad or, or am I getting this close to it? it's just going to, I can see the, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I guess that's, um, that's the art of the, the startup and that's, that's the arts, you know, is knowing when to, when to hold them, when to fold them, etc. But uh, Vincent, it's been a, a great chat. I'm going to, I'm going to put up um, links to, to all your bits and pieces on our show notes. We've been chatting with Vincent Latempio, who's a partner in the law firm, Klaus Stenger and Latempio, and he's a co-author of the book, Patent Fundamentals for Scientists and Engineers. Vincent, what is the best way people can get a hold of you on, on Twitter or Facebook or email? Yeah, I'm, I'm on all those things. My Twitter handle is just Latempio. I have a mm -hmm. YouTube channel called Patent Home. And if you just type in patent, I have a bunch of videos up that you can see. And my, my phone number is all over it. And my local number here in the U.S. is 716-853-1111. Uh, and I have a, a website, latempiolaw.com and clauslaw.com, a couple of websites. So it's pretty simple. If you type in my name and patent, I'll, I'll pop up all over the place. Great. Uh, really appreciate your time. That was super interesting and uh, we enjoyed having you on the podcast. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate having this opportunity and good luck in all your future podcasts. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Check Dog.
Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. Checkdog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error free. So I didn't get totally into the whole patents and software, but it's actually a massive, massive area, Kate, and there's actually quite a lot of controversy, even if around software should be patentable. Um, there's actually quite an extensive Wikipedia article about that. But intellectual property is quite an interesting area. I mean, I know when we first started Manage Flitter and it started as an internal project and then as just a fun side project, and we didn't we didn't think through it was just literally a, a small side project and we didn't think through much around that project, including the branding. And we just called it Manage Twitter because uh, you know it was something to manage your Twitter account. And uh, we got an email from Twitter saying, Hey, you guys can't use our name in your name, so change it. So we got into trouble from Twitter. You definitely need to sort of, uh, you know, maintain awareness around all the intellectual property side of things and uh, the branding and the trademarking. And, of course, copyright is a big, big one as well, which people forget about, and they just use other people's photos on Instagram. And, you know, so it is something that you really need to maintain awareness of. Yeah, definitely. I like the way you pointed out that you can also protect your ideas on a cheaper, small scale using copyright because patents are quite expensive. Yeah. So you can't really patent an idea, but you can patent the execution of it and you can copyright content. So that's a, those are important aspects to remember. So if you if you have a great idea, you need to patent the execution of it. You can't really um, – ideas are just in the air, so to speak. But um, mm. yeah, so it's it's patents. I've I, I think I think that's a whole, and especially as they relate to software. I don't personally know of any companies um, that have patented software like any of my peers. Um, as we discussed, Uber, and it's interesting. You can just Google that. You just Google the patents that Uber has, and you can see they've all the patents that they have. I'm still a bit confused because some of what they've patented seem to be standard smartphone usages, like determining the location of a user and aspects like that. Some some are quite obviously complex, like uh, you know working out how to coordinate, you know, a bunch of riders for the you know, for their lift ride sharing, et cetera. But yeah, so it's a, it's a bit of a minefield and the big companies, the big tech companies are definitely on the patent side of things, very, very involved with it. And uh, sometimes they even buy companies for their patents and et cetera. But on the, the smaller end of the world, I'm not very familiar uh, with that side of things. But he's had an interesting right. life as well, right? Yeah, it definitely sounded like it. He's uh, lost his hand when he was quite young. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that. That can't be easy at any at any point in your life. No, he's definitely overcome it. He seems like a smart man. I was I was particularly impressed when he started waffling off all the the different copyrights, I guess, of all the the big companies that sort of went beyond a logo or a tagline. 
so much to the point like the UPS brown, uh, like the color of the brown, which I didn't know was that was even a thing. And then I, I saw a UPS van just recently, and I was uh-huh. like, no, it's black. And I went up to it, I was like, no, it's actually brown. Like <laughs> <laughs> they've painted it brown. But even sounds, you know, like that lion roar from MGM and all mm-hmm. the movies. Mm-hmm. Did not know that that had a copyright on it. I didn't know you could even copyright a sound. But I think that's great. Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think there's a few companies that have copyrighted colors. I think BP, if I remember correctly, their color, uh, mm. their green. I reckon that would have had the same color. McDonald's. I'm sure they have all their colors. Yeah. Uh, For their uh, main logos, they'd have to. Yeah, re- really interesting to be able to copyright a a color. I don't know how they would enforce that though. That would be very interesting. There must, I reckon, there must be some clause that you know you, you can't use it in direct competition to them. Right. So as long as you're not opening up a burger joint. Yeah, as long as you're not a threat to that business. I don't know this for a fact, but it must be. Like, how do you how do you copyright a color like a hex code and say, oh no, that's ours? I mean, somebody could just pick the next hex code. You know I mean, it would be only very slightly different. Yeah, and apparently someone even, one of the big companies, the big music publishing companies, owns the copyright to Happy Birthday. Did you know that? I have heard that. I thought that recently expired, though. Did it? I did read something. In theory, in theory, royalties are owned every time, you know, a group of kids sings Happy Birthday. So, but maybe, <laughs> maybe it's... Maybe it's expired, but yeah. So there's there's all these there's all these quirks. There's actually there's actually a really interesting story about the the Lion King theme, right? As well. Oh, that's based on Hamlet. No, uh-uh. it was written by a guy in South Africa, and it's quite a convoluted sort of sequence of events. But this chap in South Africa never landed up getting any royalties because he got hustled out of it and the publishing company landed up owning it. And um, I can't remember the exact details, but yeah, there was someone that fought for his rights and eventually, after many, many years, he did manage to get some some royalties out of it. So, yeah. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And in high school, we studied Shakespeare and Mm -hmm. – Fairly sure it was Hamlet. I should double check that. But yeah, that basically the Lion King was written around the story of Hamlet. Oh, interesting. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, well, so I think Shakespeare's copyrights sort of expired. But um, probably. Yeah. No, this is this is the that African sounding theme song. Oh, just the song. Yeah, just the song. Oh, okay. So In the, the jungle. The, yeah. No. No. It's just just the theme song. But of course, when a movie like that does so well, there's a lot of money behind you know, royalties of a theme song. Mm. So, yeah, it's quite quite an interesting story. If everyone's interested in looking at what can go wrong if you don't own the copyrights and something becomes very, very successful. And, of course, you have quirky cases as well, like with Facebook where guys did the mural and, I mean, it's not really a copyright thing, but guys did the mural and got paid in equity for Facebook by, um, with Facebook shares and ended up getting $200 million for the mural, etc. So... Yeah. Or a mural inside the headquarters. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, he traded his time for some Facebook equity. And uh, when it listed, it uh, did really well. And uh, he got $200 million effectively for a mural. Wow. That was smart. Well, it's always smart in retrospect, right? Oh, yeah. 
sometimes you can kind of sense whether they're going to do well or not. I recently downloaded, it seems to be a big thing. It's called Vero. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are sort of moving there from Instagram, but it's not just about photos and visuals. It's actually about sharing music, links, news, mm-hmm. um, all sorts of things. And I think you can push it to other social networks too, but they're sort of marketing it as the true social. So you can actually better filter groups and who who gets to share it. So you can put it in like close friends, acquaintances or public. Okay, interesting. I'll, yeah. I'll, have, to, I'll have to check it out. Who's behind it? I'm not too sure, to be honest. And they downloaded it yesterday, I believe. Mm-hmm. First, first million uh, signups, I guess, or downloads are for free, but their eventual plan is to have like a subscription-based model and people pay to use it. Facebook will buy them if they're successful, so Facebook will yeah, probably. protect their They're turf. kind of going into, into Facebook territory, actually. They're probably a little bit too close to Facebook in terms of what it does. Interesting. Well, um I'll yeah. definitely, I'll definitely check it out. V E R O. Yes, Vero interface is great. I can see why people like it. Yeah, with consumer tech, it's really, really important to get the interface right. Enterprise, you've got a lot more leeway. Um, although I think it's it's changing, but um, consumer tech, you really need to get the the UI right. Definitely. Vero, true social. Vero makes sharing online more like real life. Choosing who sees which posts. Yeah, interesting. Well, yeah, no business is bulletproof. Things are changing and evolving, right? And there's always Definitely. a good start, which, which makes it makes it interesting. Cool. Well, that is episode number 114 done. We'll try to come to you every week or so. And uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. And we'll catch you in the next week or so. See you later. Thank you.